you here uh, with us. We're a church, as uh, Shabu uh, says, and I think it's just great. We are not a perfect church, but we serve a perfect Saviour. And uh, we uh, wish to read his word, to study his word, to learn from his word. And so there's a team that preach as best we can and as honestly as we can here uh, to bring to you the word of God so that you might grow in him. So let's pray for Mike. Father, thank you for Mike for his willingness uh, to read your word, to study your word, and to bring the word to us this morning. Father, we might open our spiritual ears that we might hear what you have to say to us today, that we might grow to be more like Jesus. Uh, Lord God, we are, again, we are so excited about uh, seeing you face to face, Lord God, and, and until that time, would you help grow us uh, through what you are teaching us in your word and through your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, this will show you how particular I am about instruction. Is it one or two that I have to do? Two, thank you. There we go. So, as, as uh, John has mentioned, we are... Um, having a look at just six verses in Hebrews this morning, Hebrews chapter 13. Just our short mini-series through the last couple of chapters in Hebrews. So if you have your Bibles or it's on a, some other sort of device, if you can turn to Hebrews chapter 13 from verse 1. And we're just going to read six verses together. Hebrews 13 verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage, let the marriage bed be held in honour among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral, immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say... The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The relationship between siblings can be a complex one. We as parents understand that. We've seen it firsthand. On the one hand, there are few people who know the right button to press in order to stir us up, to upset, frustrate or embarrass us than do our brothers and sisters. They are there to put us in our place if we get ahead of ourselves. And our brothers and sisters seem to be quite adept at telling us what they really think of us, about those things we might need to work on, those things that they see in us that um, they think should be changed or likewise. And I guess I see this at work in my own family. We have five children. And I, I see this at work in our own home as I watch our kids interact with each other. Our two oldest kids, Stephen and Melanie, uh, when they were young and as they've grown, uh, I would characterise them as um, enjoying being in competition with each other. Stephen, the eldest, when he started school, wasn't too fussed about school, wasn't too concerned about learning until his little sister, who, who was too young to even go to school, not only started to learn the things that he was learning, but actually started to go past him. And suddenly Stephen realised, well, I need to take notice. I don't want Melanie to, to be smarter than me. Fast forward a few years, Stephen gets his learners. And he was never all that interested in getting 120 hours up. Until, that is, his younger sister also got her learners. 
And being an organised person, she would always say, can I drive? Mum and Dad, can I drive? I want to get my hours up. And then Stephen suddenly realised, I'm the eldest. I should have the first rights. I should be in the car driving. And that gave him some motivation to to get his hours up for, for getting his licence. Brett and Nicole had an entirely different relationship. As, as you know Nicole, she comes to church and she sits down and many people will characterise Nicole as being a quiet, well-spoken young lady. And that's, that's true up to a point. But we see a different side of Nicole. When Nicole was young, she seemed to delight in tormenting Brett, her older brother. And she would do this by kicking, by punching, by pinching, by biting. But her favourite modus operandi was to pull hair. She would be constantly pulling Brett's hair. We couldn't allow them to sit beside each other in the car because we know there would, there would have been trouble if we did. And Brett, to his great credit, just seemed to sit there and take it from his little sister. And I like to think it's because he took to heart what his parents would say to him, that, you know, we don't hit our sisters. We love them. We care for them. I'm not sure if that was the real reason, but that's what I like to think anyway. Now, I want to say a couple of things before I move on. Firstly, um, I have spoken to my kids about what I've spoken to you now. There's no, no great family secrets. Anyone who knows our family really reasonably well has heard these stories before. And it is just a coincidence there's only one of my children here this morning. It's not, it's not done on purpose. <laughs> I should also add that uh, it's a great joy to us to have all our kids uh, together in one place. Catch up with them with a meal or whatever it might be because they have a great relationship with each other. And that's, as a parent, very special. So I want to say to you parents who are in the middle of it right now, God is good, God is great, and uh, God will, by his grace, continue to grow your family as pleases him. But here lies a contradiction of sorts. For while these things occur in the family, yes, there are fights, yes, there is turmoil, yes, there is sibling rivalry, while these things occur, it is also true that often in our times of greatest need, where we are grieved, hurt, or in need of support in other ways, that it's family who's there to help. Certainly in our home, as the parents, we've endeavoured to instil in our children the unique blessing that is family. That while friends can come and go throughout the course of our life, your brothers and sisters, family will always be there. And when we think of what an ideal family life should be like, we think in terms of security, stability, laughs, love and support. And while this may not be our experience always, most of us understand that the family environment is supposed to be a place where good things happen. And it's to this environment that God seeks to welcome each Christian into as they enter fellowship with others 
through the local church. Even if it is that you've not experienced that is a family, brothers and sisters. Well, in chapter 11 of Hebrews, we read about those amazing heroes of the faith, both men and women whose faith was proven steadfast through trial, in many cases through years of hardship. Yet according to verse 13 in chapter 11, all of these people died in their faith. Their faith was real. Then we move on to Hebrews chapter 12 and we're encouraged having been shown the example of these heroes of the faith to run with endurance the race set before us. And indeed, as we've noticed the last few weeks with Nathan, it's a major theme through the last couple of chapters in Hebrews, that of endurance, that of perseverance. And here as chapter 13 starts, we're given an opportunity to see what this looks like. We're told, we read words like continue, remember, don't neglect. We're seeing a continued call to endurance, to perseverance. Because as we well know, the Christian life is a marathon. It has its ups and downs, its highs and lows. There is joy and heartache. And with all of this, we can sometimes lose ourselves in the busyness of life. What is my role in the kingdom of God? How can I impact others for Jesus? How can I be used to further the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, these six verses get us right back to basics. Regardless of our calling, our gifts, maturity, regardless of our age, wealth and intelligence, here we have a foundation for us all to build our work. A foundation that requires perseverance persistence. Now what we're reading today, we understand being primarily Christians. To those of us who have the right and privilege to be called children of God and to call him Father. As we work through these six verses, there is a progression that leads to a wonderful statement of fact in verse 6. But it starts with these words, verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Here is a foundational, unequivocal Christian imperative, that of brotherly love. All believers are linked by the common bond of being saved by faith in Christ. Born not of blood, but of the Spirit. Out of this common bond, Jesus commands us to love one another as he has loved us. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20, we read that if we do not love our brother who we can see, we're not likely to love God who we cannot see. You see, John there strips away the veneer of that church persona. When we walk in the door and we shake hands and everything seems to be just fine in our lives and everyone else we talk to seems to be going really well as well. Church, if you or I cannot love the fellow believer that is sitting in front of us or is sitting down the back or in our mind we have an issue with. If we can't love those people, don't kid ourselves into thinking that all is well in our walk. Brotherly love, that Philadelphia love that uh, 
that is what we're talking about here, is that love of a close family relation, a sibling. It includes the idea of forgiving wrongs, serving out of a willing heart, looking to the interests of others above ourselves. It unites, builds up. It's not jealous or envious. The epistles record this same word a number of times in encouraging Christians to regard each other as brothers. Now, we know that's nothing new. As Christians, we understand we are, we are children of God. We are brought into a family of God. The concept is not new to us. So why is it so important? Why the call to persevere to let brotherly love continue? Well, first and foremost is because Jesus commands us to. Remember in Matthew chapter 22, uh, someone comes to him and he asks him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Seeking to try and trap Jesus. And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And we understand that and we read that and we embrace it. Yes, he must be of preeminence in our life. But Jesus didn't finish there. Jesus says, and the second is this, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Well, we're called to persevere also because there are times when brotherly love can grow cold. When we forget its importance. There are times when a critical, bitter attitude can creep up on us. When all we see are the faults in others, forgetting that, indeed, these are brothers and sisters in Christ, made in his image as we are. You recall the church in, Eph- in Ephesus in, uh, in Revelation is warned that it is strayed from its first love, that of Jesus Christ. How easy is it to stray from brotherly love? To forget that we are all part of the family of God. We are all brothers and sisters. The sober warning for each of us is that where brotherly love is lacking, we are in a dangerous place. A third reason why it's important to persevere in brotherly love is that it's not all easy. It's not always easy. Let's be honest, some of our fellow Christians just rub us up the wrong way. Some Christians are just prickly. I've said it, it's out there. We understand that. Maybe there's not a lot in common, or they think differently. They may not live as we think they should. Their parenting is not as we would like. Perhaps they're outspoken. Or they have different interpretations of scripture that we don't agree with. Someone has offended us at some point. There's someone else who's not shown brotherly love to us. Yet still we are called to persevere in what Jesus has called us to. So why is it so important to love those who are not always easy to love? To show grace to those who may not reciprocate? Because Jesus says... It's evidence toward all those around you that indeed you're a disciple of his. John 13, 34 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have loved one for another. Now there are many groups or organisations that bring people together. 
When we go to the footy, there's a certain camaraderie with our fellow supporters. What makes sporting political or social associations so important in the community is that they serve to bring people together, to unite people in a common cause. But the Church of Jesus Christ is on another level altogether. It should be a powerful example of the love of Christ which has been poured out to us. An example that should cause the world to look on and ask how can such an eclectic group of people function so well together. A place where every believer, young or old, can know they are accepted into the fold as brothers and sisters in Christ. Where even in spite of our many and varied backgrounds, interests, passions and abilities, there is a unity that defies human logic. A unity born of Christ. Now, in case we're left to wonder what practical brotherly love looks like outside of those friendship groups that we have, the next two verses answer the question for us. We're told to practice hospitality, to continue in hospitality. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Now, we all understand it's not difficult to be hospitable to our friends. And we all have uh, friends in church that we, we naturally gravitate towards. It's not hard to be hospitable to these people. But true biblical hospitality welcomes strangers. It invites people who you may not connect with so easily. Perhaps there are those who are struggling in church life, who are hurting... It invites them to share part of your life with them. It asks the visitor into your home in order to show Christian fellowship to all. Now we're told there in verse 2 that some have entertained angels unawares. I don't know, to be honest, whether like Abraham and Lot and, and others too, I've ever entertained angels. I tried to think of all those times we've had people in our homes and I can't remember a time when after someone's left I sort of thought, wow, it's just like an angel has been in my presence. I can't think. Uh, I can't recall that. But if that is the purpose, if that is, that is why you want to try and be hospitable in the hope that one day you're going to entertain an angel, then you've missed the point. Instead, we need to see at what lies underneath that sometimes God uses Christian hospitality in unexpected ways for his glory. Who might you and I be able to bless, encourage, strengthen or minister to through our willing act of hospitality? Who might God bring across your path into your life that you might show the love of Christ to in all its glory? What if God wants to show the wonder of true Christian love to someone who is desperately lonely or lost and he chooses you as that vessel to do it? Isn't that not a great privilege? Isn't that not a great opportunity for us to be used of God in each other's lives? Hospitality in New Testament times was really crucial to the spread of the gospel. I mean, think about it. If teachers, evangelists or fellow believers in that day couldn't rely on Christians for support in a world that was often hostile towards them, then how much 
harder is their ministry going to be to fulfil? We, of course, in our day and age, have different impediments to hospitality. For some, it might be wanting to keep our own privacy. We're a very private society. Or perhaps we jealously guard what little spare time we have in a busy week. Perhaps the truth is that no one has modelled hospitality to you, so you're not exactly sure how or where to start. Certainly the truth is it's just much easier to commune with your friends. I think we would do well to remember how important that someone has been to us in the past who has gone out of their way to show hospitality. Perhaps it's as you've walked into a new church. Perhaps it's as you've sat down in church life and the weight of the world is bearing down on you. And someone comes and sits beside you and shares their life with you. Perhaps someone has invited you into their home and gone out of their way to show true hospitality. Well, flowing from hospitality comes, comes the need to remember those who are less fortunate from our, than ourselves. We're told in verse 3, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Now keep in mind that context that we're looking at this morning. Verse 3 points to the need to support fellow believers, whether they're in prison or suffering in other ways. Now we know prison fellowship does a great, unique work, ministry in the, in the prisons to both Christians and non-Christians someone in our midst who, has, who is involved in prison fellowship. We need to pray and support for, those, for our fellow brothers and sisters, whether they be in prison, whether they be abroad in a country where they have been severely persecuted for their faith. In the context Prisoners during the time that the Bible was written were, were not treated very well. Not like we know today where they get a TV and they have a gym and they have exercise regime they can go to. They can, they can uh, do a university degree. If they, there was nothing like that. They relied on the help and support of those from outside the prison in order to survive. Sometimes the here and now consumes us so much it consumes so much of our time that we miss out on the joy of sharing in the needs of those less fortunate than ourselves. Forgetting that while we meet in comfort and freedom to worship the Lord, there are many more who are under the threat of losing their very lives for that which we take for granted here today. Showing hospitality, remembering those in need, remind me of the sobering words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 25. Can you turn with me there? Matthew chapter 25, and I want to read from verse 36. The context is that Jesus is talking about the end times, when he's going to return and there'll be a judgment. And he'll separate from the, the sheep from the goats. And Jesus said, I was, naked, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see a stranger? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer him, truly I say to you, 
as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it unto me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Brotherly love in action brings joy to our Heavenly Father. Just like it brings joy to our parents to see uh, their children living in harmony. Well, verse 4 moves the focus of brotherly love from that general relationship with other believers to the closest human relationship that mankind has to offer, that of marriage. Let the marriage bed be held in honour among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Like today, marriage in the early church was under fire. The Pharisees saw to it that if you wanted to divorce your wife, it wasn't a difficult thing. Just, just write them a letter and give it to them. There were false religions at that time encouraging temple prostitution. And even the church in Corinth was struggling to stay clear of sexual immorality. And it's, a, it's an issue that churches throughout the centuries have had to battle with and deal with. This text, and indeed the tenet of scripture, teaches a much higher standard for marriage, one all Christians should aspire to. Now, I know this subject touches a raw nerve. As a leadership, truly we grieve over those of you who have known the pain, grief and betrayal of a broken marriage or those who may be in the midst of that silently right here and now. And we pray that the great shepherd will gather you close and sustain you by his grace. Yet the truth is this. Love, love that stems from your relationship with Christ is at the centre of your marriage's health, growth and stability. Is there a greater testimony that we can, we can give to the world? than a solid, Christ-honouring marriage? Is there a greater security that our children can grow up with than a couple that love the Lord as they love each other? There is no greater human relationship you'll experience than to have two people honouring their marriage, being faithful until death parts. Ephesians chapter chapter 5 gives this wonderful picture of marriage. Paul uses it as the closest illustration that we might be able to understand the relationship between Christ and his church. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. If this kind of sacrificial love is present, we will honour God in our marriages. Because that Christian husband-wife relationship is a picture of Christ's relationship with the church, 
marital infidelity has profound implications. Implications that go far beyond the Yet when we seek to honour him through our marriages, despite the challenges that we face at times, other people look on and they get a glimpse of the stability, security, faithfulness and the wonder of what Jesus Christ brings and what he's accomplished in our lives together. What a, what a tremendous testimony we have in honouring our man. Even if we don't realise Well, from our relationship with others to that of our spouses, finally, and probably the most common stumbling block so many of us face in the Western world, one that really points to our character. Verse 5 says, we should be free from the love of money. I heard on the radio a couple of weeks ago that we were the third wealthiest country on the planet. And while this affords us a number of luxuries that uh, many in the world could only dream of, it also leaves us susceptible. It can cause us to think that the here and now, that the money that we're able to, to collect and grow, that our possessions are the solution to our problem. Now, as always, when we talk about the issue of money, as we look at this topic, it's not the possession of money that is the issue, but it's the significance it has in our life that is of concern according to the Scriptures. Jesus said we cannot serve God and money. 1 Timothy 6.10 says this, and he's talking to Christians. This is sobering. Listen to the words. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, It is through this craving, listen, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. If our pursuit of happiness, meaning, contentment is sought by that which is inanimate, that which has no life, we will never find what we truly seek. Meaning, contentment and a clear purpose in this life we live. Well, verse 6 is for all believers the source, that means through which brotherly love is truly expressed. The means to true contentment, the ability to look beyond our own needs and wants to that of others, is found in him. King of kings, Lord of lords, he who is the creator and sustainer of all things, yet in all the wonder of who he is, in his might, he knows you. He knows me. As we sit here this morning, he knows each of us intimately. We can be content in all the circumstances of life because he has promised to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So therefore we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now while this is a direct quote from Psalm 118 and its thoughts are found in a number of of Psalms as well as Deuteronomy 31 and verse 6. The fact is that this this concept is echoed throughout the centuries by Christians as they live their faith before a world that for the most part 
does not share that faith. And I would encourage you that if you remember nothing else this morning, that, that you take this phrase home. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? If you haven't memorized anything for a while, I would encourage you to do so. You know, I cannot show true brotherly love toward others, practice hospitality, remember those who are suffering, honor my marriage, or have the right perspective on money and possessions where Jesus Christ is absent. I cannot be the husband or wife I should be or the brother in Christ able to show love and grace in all my interactions without him. Even though we fail at times, we know we fall short of all that we would like to be. Wherever we are, whatever the circumstances, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now, this love we've referred to cannot be drummed up by our own efforts. By the power of positive thinking, we do not find the deep abiding love for others nor experience this love from others in any other forum except through the mercy and grace freely offered through Jesus Christ. I would encourage, if you are sitting here this morning wondering, what has he been talking about? What does it mean to be part of the church of Jesus Christ? How can you experience the richness of being part of the family of God, where regardless of who you are, of what you have done, or where you've come from, yet you have a home to come to? There is family here. Jesus Christ is the answer. There is no other name by which we must be saved. Saved not by our own worth, but through the mercy and grace, by faith, in the one who took your penalty for sin upon himself. That's the Jesus Christ. That's the saviour we know, who welcomes us into his family as we call upon him. Well, as, we, as we've concluded, we, we've heard a call to never forget, give up or neglect, but through endurance, through perseverance, live as our God would want us to. I'm reminded of the words in Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, we are asked, we're in, encouraged as Christians to bear each other's burdens. And it closes with these words, Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap a, a reward if we do not give up. Parents, persevere. Fellow Christians, persevere. We will see a reward someday by God's grace. If we don't have brotherly love toward each other, we just do a disservice to our Saviour and we live in direct, willful disobedience to his command. I wonder how much effort do we expend seeking to welcome strangers to our fellowship or when we see those who are hurting that we take a few minutes to sit down beside them to give them words of encouragement, to let them know that we are praying for them. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. I wonder, do we ever make an effort to be informed of what's going on in the world around us? Our brothers and sisters in, in other countries, in other lands, in other circumstances that are severely suffering for their faith. 
Do we make an effort to, to be aware of that and even more than that, to be praying for them? To support them in any other way as God calls us to? Who do we truly serve? God or, you can put anything in there, God or whoever, whatever else you serve that's not got God first is an idol. There is a real reason why the Bible talks so much on the issue of money. The reality is because it's such an issue for us. And and God wants to continue to remind us to have it in the right place. It's a subtle honey trap. When Paul actually gives out the character, the qualifications of an elder, one of the things is he should not have uh, a love for money. How do you intend to honour God in your marriage? I just want to encourage all of us that it is never too late to start. Our God is a gracious God. Our God is a forgiving God. Our God is an empowering God. If you are sitting there this morning and you wonder what your marriage looks like to the world around, it's not too late. Our God will help. We would encourage you to come and ask for help if you feel you need it. We would love to be able to share with you some of what God has taught us as a leadership that we might be able to journey with you in that. I wonder, for those of you who are single, how does your lifestyle lend itself to preparing yourselves for marriage if that's what God wills for you? What are you doing now to prepare yourself for that time when before God you enter into a covenant relationship with another person. What are you doing now that will help to prepare you for that process? Let me close with these words. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's pray. Our Father God, we are uh, in awe of who you are. Uh, It astounds us once again to think that you have not only saved us, but you've empowered us for the task that you've called us to. I pray that as a church we'd be characterised by brotherly love, that people would see in us a real desire to want to know Jesus, a real desire to want to follow him. Lord God, teach us what it means to endure to persevere in these most important of things, that we would love each other, that we would show hospitality to each other, that we would care for those who are in need, that we would honour our marriage, that we would have a right relationship to you in all the areas of our life. Teach us and bless us by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.